0: Did you guys see the latest? What? It was this like weird CNN, like kids. like kicking while he's down, like yeah. giving <laughs> amphibian to kids. <laughs> like. Oh my god. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Box Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Glacius, joined today by Sarah Cliff, and we have a new Weed's guest, Ellen Nilsson from the uh, the, the Vox Congress team, an elite crew, I would say, strike force. Really glad to have you here. And we are going to talk about Ronnie Jackson. We were going to talk about Ronnie Jackson's troubled confirmation.
1: When we planned this episode on Wednesday.
0: (laughs) Yes. um, It is now so troubled that he is withdrawn from consideration. But this is the weed. So what we wanted to do was really try to talk about the VA and the VA health system and what the issues are. And that continues to be a relevant question here as we ponder the absence. But but it is worth just starting with like the basics here, Ella, and like what happened here? Like, Who's Ronnie Jackson? And why did this wind up being such a big problem?
2: So Ronnie Jackson is the White House doctor. And when he was first nominated, I feel like there was a lot of confusion because people immediately thought about when people said Trump's doctor, people immediately thought about the, I can't remember his name, but the doctor Bornstein. Tanned, the very tanned doctor <laughs> with the sunglasses and the white lab coat. Not the same doctor. Ronnie Jackson was the White House doctor for the Obama administration, and Trump decided to pick him to be his nominee for the secretary of the VA after former VA secretary David Shulkin was, he said, was ousted, but left the position. So Ronnie Jackson. On all sides, you know, Obama administration people said he was a great guy. Trump administration people said he was a great guy, but there were a lot of questions over his experience or maybe lack of experience to run the VA, which I think is like the second largest, yeah. the largest healthcare system in America, right? And, and the, the second system. largest government agency. Yes. Okay. Yes. So he had had, by all accounts, well, at first, a good doctor, <laughs> but he had managed a staff of what up of maybe 70 people, and he was going to be asked to manage a staff of hundreds of thousands of people, and that's a huge jump.
0: So the the White House doctor position, because, you know, this is like, I think, something that has never been in the news before, but the surface plausibility of it, right, is that this is a military function. There's a, there's a small group called the White House Military Office. And they do things like they run Air Force One, which as you can tell from the name is a military operation. And they also run this White House medical team. And so Ronnie Jackson, who was in charge of the White House medical team, was a vice admiral in the Navy. Uh, and before he, he ran the medical team, he was on the White House medical team staff under George W. Bush and at the beginning of the Obama administration. And before that, he was like a a combat surgeon you know, in Iraq, and he he ran a small team there. So there's a sort of – if you're not very thoughtful about things, he's involved in medical care, which is an important part of what the VA does, and he's a military officer, which is also an important part of, of what the VA does. So it like – it kind of works, right? And and it seems like that's a, the reason Trump picked him, right? Is that like he's a military officer, he has something to do with healthcare, and Donald Trump Likes him because if you recall, it's like a million news cycles ago. But after the book Fire and Fury came out, there was a a big surge of takes that like Donald Trump was senile or, you know, like unfit to be president in some sense other than the obvious sense in which he like doesn't do the job or know what he's talking about. And Dr. Jackson came out. With a presidential fitness evaluation and like a very strong endorsement of like Donald Trump's good health, and he gave him this Canadian senility exam that Trump passed, and Trump then really trumpeted this as like this like greatest test of of mental fitness. And but but Jackson like really went to bat for him, right? He didn't he didn't do some like sheepish like yeah he's fine, and also. I'm not a politician. He, like, did a press conference in the briefing room. It was like, Trump's great. If he would eat better, he would live for 200 years. But he's actually in good shape despite his garbage diet. And he even gave him a a height-weight combination that left him (laughs) just, like, one pound or one inch
2: short of being obese. So – Yeah, he used very Trump-like words to describe Trump's health. The best.
1: But I could – I mean, I definitely could have seen a world where – He became VA secretary. Like, if this 48 hours or so that has transpired since, you know, we started thinking about this episode had not— unfolded that way, you could have seen, and I guess it's worth getting into what has happened over yes. the past few days, but I think I could have plausibly seen a world like looking at other cabinet members who have been confirmed where, you know, this guy ends up running America's largest healthcare system. So- sure, if oh, Ben Carson
0: can run Exactly. High,
1: that's who I was thinking of. Yeah, <laughs> it no. wouldn't have been that controversial. <laughs> exactly. But then we had um, this kind of cascade of- a slow drip of news about Ronnie Jackson's practices while serving as White House doctor. Among them, one is possible drunkenness on the job. And I will say at the start of this, he denies all these charges. So just to— caveat around it. But most of this is coming from Congress that is starting to vet him and review him, interview other people who worked with him in that office, um, in the White House doctor's office. They start getting reports that he may have been drunk while traveling with President Obama um, and unable to perform certain duties when needed. There's one anecdote about people going to his hotel room on some kind of overseas trip. And, you know, he was too drunk to do whatever he needed to do. So they picked up the supplies and just went without him. Then we started getting, um, you know, more reports about improper dispensing of medications. At first, it was Ambien to White House staff and— I was surprised this took so long to break because the New York Times article said White House staff and campaign reporters. So it was kind yes. of—I guess no campaign <laughs> reporter, like, wants to be clear, like, well, here's how I know this. is because Ronnie Jackson gave me an Ambien, but it says— he was dispensing medication to White House staff. It's hard um, to
0: say why it took John Tester conducting <laughs> exactly, congressional yes. oversight for journalists to find out that journalists yes. had been getting <laughs> That seemed a little odd, amb- uh,
1: but I guess no one wants to raise their hand and say, like, I was the one who got the unprescribed Ambien. Then I think the one that really um, broke the camel's back in a way was a report on Wednesday about providing opioids without prescription or writing prescriptions for Percocet, which is a pretty powerful opioid medication. And I think in the midst of the opioid crisis that we're having now and in possibly taking the helm of an agency that has had its own struggles with Opioid prescribing. That really seemed to be the last revelation before we found out Thursday morning that Ronnie Jackson would be stepping back. I haven't even, I think, Matt, you've read, there's yeah. a CNN article that came out um, with more on Ronnie Jackson. So, this, so this, this CNN article,
0: I, I think this is important because this CNN article, as written, I think it really squares the circle between everybody in Obama's senior staff seemed to like Jackson and also. Everyone in Trump's senior staff seemed to like Jackson, but when Congress started doing oversight, he seemed wildly inappropriate. And and here's the lead. MJ Lee and Juana Summers write it. The White House Medical Unit frequently functioned as a, quote, grab-and-go clinic where mid-level staffers to the most senior officials could obtain prescription drugs without being examined by a doctor, casually pick up the powerful sleeping aid Ambien even for their children, and get drugs that were not prescribed to the person actually taking the medication. So... I mean, that's great, right? Like, that's a great personal service. Anybody would like it if their work had a, like, respected military doctor who was actually just super conveniently handing out drugs to anybody who wanted them, right? Like, I wish when, like— Jose was was sick a few weeks ago and it was like pretty clear he had an ear infection, that we didn't have to like drag him to the minute clinic and get him examined by an actual doctor and get a legitimate prescription for antibiotics and get them filled at the counter and like pay money for the medicine. But that's illegal. And there's a reason it doesn't scale, right? And this goes exactly to the point about the difference between like running a small team to serve a small number of elite clients and like running a government agency is that like there is a reason that medicine and pharmacology in the united states is not practiced on the basis of grab and go take Ambien for your kids if you want, get medicine that hasn't been prescribed to you because you might feel like you want it, right? Like, it's dangerous. It Well, and
1: especially with something like opioids, I would
2: say. Percocet is not good.
0: Well, I mean, opioids are addictive, but like, you know, like Ambien's are habit-forming. They can also, you can like kill people if you take that kind of stuff in the wrong thing. But also just like overuse of antibiotics is not going to cripple the White House staff, but like it's a public health disaster, right? And like there's just a big difference between like doing concierge medicine for the president of the United States and like doing responsible public health practice, right? And some of this stuff he did even in the White House context I think like crossed a line legally and and ethically, but it's also just – it underscores what a different – thing it is like the VA I mean it exists to serve military veterans but that's a very large population it's not it's not just like a dispensary right they need to like manage resources maintain the health of a population that has unique medical needs and like think about systemic questions in American health care rather than just like be the best friend to the president's staff.
1: I'm curious Ella you spent a lot of this week on the hill What was the Democrat plan? Like, were they expecting this to implode this quickly, or like, how did this unfold? Because a lot of this is being led by John Tester, who's the ranking member on the Veterans Affairs Committee in the Senate, like, what's going on there? What's their role? And, like, were they surprised, like, Thursday they suddenly found themselves no longer working on this?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that they were surprised. And it was interesting because I was sort of running around Capitol Hill interviewing Democratic senators, sort of trying to sort of figure out, you know, if the Democrats had a strategy on this nomination. Obviously, Tester was doing a lot of the work in, you know, just coming forward with the information that he was getting presented to his committee, all these allegations about Jackson. But I think that, so it was in the middle of like, as the first allegations about the ambient dispensing and like the drunkenness on the job were coming out. And I was talking to Democratic senators and asking them about it. And they were basically just like, this is a rumor mill. Like, we're not really like paying attention to rumors right now. Like, this is an investigation that needs to happen. These facts need to be substantiated. But I think like to Matt's earlier point, what Democrats were really focused on was just like, this guy is not necessarily qualified to run the VA because he just doesn't have the qualifications. He hasn't managed the the number of people that (laughs) he would have to manage under the VA. And that was, I think, their main concern rather than just sort of the, the number of allegations. But I think that certainly it, it picked up the pace. And I should point out, it wasn't just uh, Democrats that had these concerns. There were definitely Republican senators that were just, you know, open and on the record saying, if this number of allegations and the serious allegations come out, I don't think that we can seriously consider him for this position.
0: Okay, so this is a good opportunity to try to zoom out a little bit. And like, What's the deal with with the VA, Sarah? Like, oh, yeah. so veterans, we, every, everybody loves veterans, right? They it have an administration. Veterans. It's a cabinet agency. Like, what do they do?
1: Yeah. And I will start this by saying there are things that the VA does that are not healthcare that – it is a very large agency, and we're going to focus on the healthcare side. So I just want to acknowledge our things: there are insurance programs, there are loans, there are other sort of benefits that run through the VA that are important, but generally seem to be running fine and have not attracted the kind of controversy and attention that the health side of the VA. So the
0: way the way does. the VA is structured, right, is there's like there's three undersecretaries of the VA. One is in charge of memorials and cemeteries. One is in charge of health, and then the other is in charge of they just call it. Benefits. So it's like the VA does healthcare, it's like half of it. And then it does like a whole bunch of other stuff. Yes. Is the other half auto loans, student stuff, right. mortgage guarantees. And it's about half of the budget and it is about none of the political controversy. Yes. So, so we're going to talk about that. Yeah. Healthcare. So we're going
1: to talk about the healthcare. So the VA runs the largest healthcare system in America. They have. Um, According to their website, 1,240 healthcare facilities, including 170 hospitals and about 1,000 outpatient um, sites, and they deliver care to 9 million veterans all across the country. I often think of the VA as kind of America's mini NHS, the NHS being the National Health Service in England, where all the hospitals are owned and operated by the government and um, it's essentially a nationalized healthcare system. So, you know, even when Bernie Sanders talks about single payer healthcare in America, he's not talking about going as far as the VA. He's not talking about nationalizing the hospitals, having the government literally own the healthcare resources. But that is how the healthcare system works. In England, and that is how the healthcare system works in the VA. It's also worth um, saying
0: it's it's not even that many, right? I mean you talk about sure. a healthcare system for nine million patients. It's about the same sizes. That's that's like the healthcare system of Sweden has yes. ten million patients, the healthcare system of Norway has probably 5 million patients. Right. So
1: it's like a— It's one of probably—I haven't looked at the numbers, but probably one of the largest government-owned healthcare systems in the world. Because, like, Sweden, I'm pretty sure, you know, it still has private ownership of its hospitals with, like, a public health insurance plan. So yes. it is, Um, is—it's big, and it has, as I'm sure listeners of this show know, it has struggled with— Man, how do you manage 9 million people in this healthcare system? How do you get them the right care at the right time? How do you ensure that there are not wait times? Uh, Well, I'll start with what the VA does well, and then I'll get to some of the things the VA struggled with, and we can kind of go from there. So the VA actually does pretty well overall when researchers look at quality. Um, One of the things that's a bit unique about the VA – is all of their physicians are salaried. So, you know, they are not being paid on a fee-for-service schedule. They are not paid just to do more medicine for the sake of doing more medicine. Um, And, you know, Rand did an evaluation in 2016, and this is after the whole wait wait time scandal— where they found um I'm just going to read from their results is that the VA often, but not always performs better than similar systems of care with regard to safety and effectiveness. There weren't unfortunately enough studies to um, draw a conclusion on timeliness or efficiency. So we'll get to that in a little bit. The VA also is a huge purchaser of prescription drugs, and it tends to have much lower prescription drug costs, unlike Medicare, the VA actually is the authority to negotiate prices. And you see that, um, In its pricing, one study of VA drug pricing found that um, between 1998 and 2007, prices of drugs distributed in the VA, they went up 7% over eight years, which is just like tiny for healthcare inflation to go up 7% over eight years. That's also 1% a year. That's lower than inflation. It's just unheard of. The other thing the VA is known for in healthcare is having a really good electronic medical record system. That you can, if you go to a VA hospital in Washington state and then you go to one in Florida, those are connected and they can actually see your records. Anyone who's used the rest of the American healthcare system knows that this is very, very rarely the case. So that's kind of what has been working for the VA. What is admired about the VA is that they have relatively low cost growth, pretty good health IT. The thing they've struggled with, and this also reminds me of um, you know the UK in a lot of ways, is ensuring access to care, making sure that people are able to get the care they need when they need it. In 2014, there was the wait time scandal that forced the resignation of um, Eric Shinseki. It's actually really hard to find data at this point about how much improvement there has been. The VA has certainly touted Certain um, things they've done, they've created a website, for example, where veterans could check how long the wait time is at different clinics for different procedures, but there's a lot of criticism that the information's not accurate. All of this has led to the debate that we're kind of having right now about how much privatization should be allowed in the Veterans Affairs Admission. And when we talk about privatizing the VA, we essentially are talking about letting VA beneficiaries go to private clinics to seek care rather than the ones that are being run by the VA. And there was an element of this that actually got started under the Obama administration in the wake of this wait time scandal. They started something called um, VA Choice, where if you were facing a certain amount of wait, they would let you go to another clinic. The VA would pay for it. There is—the debate that's happening right now, the debate that seems to be part of um, Secretary Shulkin stepping down, is about how far to expand this. Should we just let any VA beneficiary— Go to a private clinic if that is their preference. If even if there isn't a wait time, if they just feel like they're going to get better care at a private clinic, should they be able to make that choice? So that's my short rundown of the of the VA.
0: Right. So so the the legislative history of this is there, there were these scandals under under the Obama administration where it turned out that basically they had created financial incentives to keep the wait time short. But some administrators were responding to those incentives, not by actually keeping the wait time short, but by fudging the records. And so because the records were being fudged, it wasn't just that people were needing to wait longer than they wanted to – but the, their care was actually being compromised because there, there weren't like correct statements of how long people had been waiting. So, so this was a big thing. Uh, Shinseki stepped down. Obama brought in uh, Bob McDonald, who was a he was an Obama appointee, but he was a Republican, not a super partisan Republican, but a, a executive at Procter and Gamble who had donated to a lot of Republicans in, in Congress over the years. A but critically, like administrator of a big company that had a big sort of piece of the healthcare pie. But, you know, like he wasn't a doctor. He was a guy who like ran big things. So he came in and then Bernie Sanders and John McCain who critically – like John McCain is himself a military veteran and an extensive user of VA services. And McCain reflected what as far as I can tell is the view of most veterans in America and certainly most veterans organizations in America, which is that they like the idea of having a special veterans health service. They have some official reasons for that, like veterans population health needs are different from the overall population and the agency can focus on them. They have some sort of political economy reasons for that, which is that like if there is a special veterans healthcare administration, that is then something that like veterans groups can lobby about. And focus on and pay attention to rather than just being lost in the overall shuffle and then also a sense that the VA has some real advantages, that the ability to coordinate care across facilities in particular as people move is really, really useful and is something that veterans don't want to give up in favor of like a voucher that would be portable but you'd be in the same like chaotic disaster of American healthcare where if you go to another state like somehow it's like you don't don't exist. So McCain basically worked with Sanders on a bill that primarily put more money into the VA, reformed some of the procedures and then created as a sop to conservatives this like very limited external option uh, voucher program but like real conservatives – who you know, are primarily coming out of the conservative health policy universe rather than the veterans universe, like they don't like the idea of fixing the VA. And you, I mean you can put this in more and less pejorative ways. But like basically if conservatives believed that you could build a world-class government-run nationwide healthcare system. Like they, they wouldn't be conservatives at all. So, you know, to them, it's either impossible to fix the VA or the idea of fixing the VA is like embarrassing. Because if the VA was great, then you get more things like Phil Longman's article from 15 years ago, where he was like, the VA is amazing. We should just let more people get VA care. Right. So they want everyone to get private medicine. So so especially veterans. But veterans Groups really liked McDonald, didn't want to privatize. They put a lot of pressure on Trump to actually keep uh, McDonald on as VA secretary. Trump didn't want to do that because during the campaign, he like made up all this stuff about how terribly veterans are being treated. So he fired him but then he promoted David Shulkin who had just been running the VA health system under Obama. So in effect, it was a continuity choice. But then because Trump doesn't know what he's doing, all the rest of the jobs went to much more ideological conservatives. They spent months at war with each other. Shulkin wound up getting fired. And it then seemed like, okay, Trump was going to side with the like Koch brothers and the conservatives and was going to like put in a real VA privatizer because that would be the reason to fire Shulkin. But instead, he just picked a a guy who has no known political opinions at all and like threw the whole thing into, into question. So we're now sitting around I mean, we're not just wondering like who will be the next choice. But like what is the Trump administration's policy on this where, you know, they have not like done anything to advance the conservative vision of VA privatization, but – The idea that they should be doing something has been like a critical backdrop to the political tensions that have created this vacancy in the first place.
2: It's worth noting that Trump was asked on his Fox and Friends interview yesterday who his next pick would be. And he did not name any names, but in typical Trump-like fashion, he said, I think we're going to have somebody great and somebody with political capability.
0: (laughs) But it should be clear. So Pete Hegseth, one of the Fox and Friends hosts, is himself a veteran. And there have been multiple reports that like Trump got him on the phone to try to mediate between Shulkin and the other VA staffers, that Trump offered him the job, which also seems like a – I mean, I'm not a big Fox and Friends fan anyway. But again, like no matter how much you like Ronnie Jackson as a physician or how much you like – Hegseth as a morning television host. There's hundreds of thousands of people work for the VA and they run, as Sarah was saying, hundreds of, of hospitals and thousands of outpatient clinics. And you need somebody, particularly if you want to do something different with that, you need somebody who knows what they're doing.
1: Right. Because it is a moment like it, where it seems like there's this debate that's happening. There was talk of increasing funding for this – choice program the kind of privatization program in some of the budget discussions that have happened this year but it never really got into any of the budget packages but if if we are on the cusp of a va that is much more generous and letting people go to different clinics to see doctors outside the va that's a really big undertaking like you lose you have to figure out things that are that are boring but really important like How do you get those medical records when someone decides to go to, you know, the private hospital down the street instead of the VA system? How is that information going to get fed back into the VA system that has this really nice closed garden um, medical record system? Um, How are you going to decide what to pay those doctors? What are their rates? Are they going to be the rates the VA typically pays? Are hospitals going to accept those rates or are they going to say that they're too— low there's a ton that goes on that is like the really boring nuts and bolts of changing how a massive massive healthcare system works and you know one other thing I do want to point out is that in other ways the VA is not it's not a contained system because it is so large other healthcare systems other doctors kind of look to it As a leader, they look to the policies that the VA sets for um, different healthcare issues and often mimic that. And I think a good example, an example where this did not go well for the VA is one that I've covered previously, where the VA was really one of the first healthcare systems in the mid 1990s to declare that pain should be treated like a vital sign. This is something that um, advocates both from the American Pain Society, which was funded by um, a lot of major pharmaceutical companies like, like Purdue, and others were really pushing at the time that doctors should ask about pain at every single visit. And they should consider it a vital sign, just like your pulse or your temperature. And the VA was the first major healthcare system to say at the VA, pain is a vital sign, and we're going to ask about it every time. When you ask about pain at every visit, you then need to do something about it when people start saying, well, yeah, I have had this like back pain for the last few months now that you mention it. And when I've talked to experts in this space about this, they really see that kind of pain as a vital sign and the VA's embrace of that as rippling out through the rest of the healthcare system and kind of one of the factors that contributes to much wider opioid prescribing. And looking back, research on this pain as a vital sign program suggests it didn't actually lead to any better pain treatment for veterans. There there wasn't the health outcome that they wanted. You you just saw higher opioid prescribing. So this is – it is both like a closed system in one way, but it also doesn't exist – in a bubble. You know, you're talking about whoever is going to run the VA is going to make decisions about how a possible choice expansion works and like just so many different policies you have to set when you're you're running a very large healthcare system.
0: So, let's take a break here. I want to talk a little bit about some of the the perils of this privatization idea. All right, guys. Your bathroom called, and they want you to know it's time to clean things up. It's time to get rid of the junk and get some like really nice, high quality stuff from the Dollar Shave Club. Uh, Members like me get everything we need for our morning routine delivered right to our door, and that means obviously Dollar Shave Club. It's in the name. They have razors. You can shave with them. I do a little shaving myself, but you know, I I do have a beard, as you may know. And part of what's cool about it is the Dollar Shave Club is so much more than just razors. They've got shampoo. They've got body wash. They've got toothpaste. They've got everything you need to like look good, to smell good. most importantly to feel good you get an amazing high quality shave with their executive razor it's the best they've used dr carver shave butter it goes on clear you can see where you're shaving which is really great if you're like me if you've got a beard and you try to keep it styled it's really good to have this shave butter it lets you see what you're doing and since dollar shave club delivers everything to you you don't just set foot in store wandering around the aisles like you know asking people where's the shampoo you know you get everything you need You get razor shampoo body wash toothpaste the whole deal so here's what you need to know if you join the dollar Shave Club today for just five dollars with free shipping, you get the six-blade executive razor plus trial sizes of shave butter, body cleanser, and one wipe. Charlie's. They keep the blades coming for a few bucks more a month. Get yours at DollarShaveClub.com/weeds. That's DollarShaveClub.com/weeds. Hello, listeners of The Weeds. I'm Grant Gordon. And I'm Ravi Gurumurthy, and we're your co-hosts of a new podcast called Displaced from the Vox Media Podcast Network and the International Rescue Committee, where Grant and I work. Right now, the world is witnessing the largest displacement crisis since World War II. That is the largest number of people displaced because of conflicts. You've seen it in headlines around Syria, Yemen, and Jordan. And if you want to understand why that is and what can be done about it, listen to Displaced. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the weeds. So in addition to the sort of complexities of how to make it work, I mean, I think it's important to underscore here that there is like it's sort of it sounds nice to say, hey, you know, if you like your VA healthcare, like you can keep it. But also we're going to give you this option to go outside, right? But like in the world of healthcare, as I'm sure we've discussed in a million other contexts on the weeds, like this kind of choice can be a real unraveling problem. Because like the VA as an institution, right, it's big, it teaches a lot of clients, but it has salaried doctors and it is not built around marketing to veterans, right? Like with the VA has an obligation to veterans. Right, If you are in need of healthcare services, the VA is obligated to provide them to you and it exists to be there for people who need it. But it is not a profit-seeking agency. Its funding is determined by congressional appropriations and not by the number of patients who come in through the door. What's supposed to happen is if they say they're overtaxed, they come up to the Hill and they're like, hey, man, like we, we need some more money for this stuff. Private hospitals, even nonprofit hospitals, are not built on that business model. Like the way a private hospital works, again, including a nonprofit hospital, is if they get more patients, they get more money, right? And if you come in with good insurance, whether that insurance is through your employer or through Medicare or through some potential VA choice scheme, like – that's great. Like the more they can bill your insurance provider for, the more money that is for them. And so hospitals, even ones that are being incredibly scrupulous with their diagnostic work, they do marketing, right? They make investments in facilities that they think will be exciting to people. And then they like advertise and they like they try to get you to come use it. So It's not a normal kind of competition. You would have a a government agency that is not like in the business of fighting for clients against private systems that like want to pull the business of veterans out. And then depending on how the payments are structured – I mean this is where the details come in. But it's like you don't want a system in which the existing VA is – crumbles like Jenga because some certain key – Clients are pulled out of it into the private system or maybe you do, right? I mean like the concerned veterans of America is this like – the Koch brothers didn't like the fact that all the different veterans organizations didn't want to privatize the VA. So they started like a new, more conservative one that does. And they would probably love it if a limited choice scheme was actually really poorly designed and caused the whole system to collapse. It's both that to do it right, you would need to pay a lot of attention, but also to do anything like you would have to have a clear vision of like what you're intended to outcome was here, right? Like you could be trying to slightly expand choice while maintaining the stability of the system, or you could be trying to use the rhetoric of slightly expanded choice to deliberately destroy the system. And like you would have to decide as a legislator, as an administrator, as a president, like exactly the sort of thing Donald Trump is not likely to do, but is like sit down Listen in a serious way to the different arguments, like decide what he's trying to do and then decide if these ideas line up with it. Part of the, the mystery of Jackson in the first place is like there was no indication that he had any interest in this subject. Right, like I mean, maybe he does. Like maybe he secretly has strong feelings about VA reform, but nothing has ever emerged. There's like aides who are like, "Oh yeah, the guy's a drunk and he hands out Ambien to children," are still not saying <laughs> but anything. But he has about some really interesting views.
1: ideas on VA. reform <laughs> or terrible policy.
0: views, right? Like because that's the thing, right? It's like you might expect that, like the story here was that like people were out to get him. Because they had some disagreement with him about the policy. But nobody knows, right? Like it's a it's a big, difficult, substantive question. And the White House does not appear to be on any level like grappling with what are they trying to – what are they trying to
1: do here? But I think like one of the things that you mentioned, it's kind of like a weird – when you look at like Republicans on this issue, it's like a weird tension between – what I think their policy goals would look like versus the constituency that they have. And I think you actually see this in um, Medicare politics too. When we talk about privatizing Medicare or voucherizing Medicare, which is a little bit different, we're talking about moving people then from a government-run health insurance program, not a health provider's program. But again, like moving people from a defined benefit run by the government to taking their money and spending it. Elsewhere, um, I think ideologically that is quite appealing to a lot of conservatives who, you know, are not fans of having a massive government-run healthcare system in the United States who, you know, are drawn to the idea that there should be competition and, you know, a theory that if all these hospitals are competing to provide veterans care, that they're going to get better care at these places, they're going to experience less wait times— so there's that that kind of ideological side of it, but on the politics, it seems really hard for Republicans to do anything to dismantle the VA. I mean, the only way like I would see this moving forward is a pretty expensive way, where you essentially like layer choice on top of the existing VA system. I don't even know if this is possible, but I can just like imagine like I could see like the path this could go down where we say, okay, there's going to be more vouchers, more VA members, they start going to private hospitals. All of a sudden we hear like a news story about a veterans hospital closing somewhere in the country. And then there's like outrage about how could you you know, leave the veterans without a hospital? And this is like terrible. It's hard for me to see the privatization stuff going forward because the politics of it seem so, so risky and so Bad, And the only way you could do it in a politically palatable way would probably be pretty expensive, essentially just like layering on a private insurance plan on top of a VA system versus like having it as a a substitute for a VA system.
0: I mean but this has become like the central tension in so much of American politics is that Republicans are a political party that relies on old people – military veterans police officers like these are important republican constituencies right it's a it's it's a party who, that is dominated on an electoral level by um uh, low levels of openness to experience uh, aversion to to social change openness to authority and hierarchy and a lot of the people like that they tend to be older they tend to be involved actually in the like arms of the, the branches of public service that involve carrying guns or wearing uniforms um, and are actually very reliant on these public sector structures, right? But then the whole ideological movement of the party is to like blow up the cops' pensions, take away the old people's guaranteed health care, like dismantle the special hospital system for military veterans. And so much of Trump as a politician was about— undoing that contradiction and just saying like, look, what if we made our party like not about all that healthcare privatization stuff? What if we instead actually like made the focus of the political party be national anthem protests and immigration? And it it worked, right? I mean people uh, in the primaries, Republican Party primary voters were more interested in that kind of politics than in Paul Ryan's kind of politics. But he hasn't actually changed the – governing agenda. So they're in the sweet spot when like last week we were talking about taking food stamps away from poor people. Uh, But whenever they talk about any government service for people who aren't desperately poor, like veterans, healthcare, senior citizens, they're trapped in this bind where, you know, it's very comfortable for Democrats. Like Democrats would love to have a big fight in Congress about privatizing the VA system because Democrats have no ideological problem with like a big government agency to help veterans. And Democrats do have a sort of like culture politics problem of not being seen as the party of loving veterans, but they they would love to take up that banner. It's an asymmetrical contradiction, right? Like people I sometimes offer the hot take that it's like, whoa, it's weird. Democrats are this like party of like, City-dwelling millennials, but like they love socialized medicine. But like Democrats really do love socialized medicine, and would be like really thrilled to go out and be like old people and veterans. You should vote for us because they are definitely supporting those those policies. It's politically perilous terrain for Republicans, and I don't I don't really know why they're kind of stumbling backwards into this subject.
2: It's so, like, difficult to remember all the way back to the primaries now. But, like, I remember covering Trump in New Hampshire all the time. And, he, you know, he would talk about veterans issues constantly. Like, that was one of his big things that he would hammer home over and over again. And, you know, he had a, a few... But what did he say? About it was, but it he was again. It was just. About he talked constantly. about it. He wasn't offering really solutions. He was just again. I mean, it was like kind of the typical Trump. This is terrible. The wait times are terrible. You know, when he fired Shulkin, he used the excuse of of wait times, and that actually made me wonder. Like, you know, since the initial scandal of the wait times blew up, like are wait times still a huge problem for for veterans or like has that has that been fixed? But yeah, I mean on the campaign trail Trump was basically just doing his shtick of like everything is terrible. The services for our veterans are terrible. We need to make them better, but not offering any sort of plan on how to do that. Really. I mean, I, w-
0: I will say on wait times, right? I mean, this is like in in England cuz veterans basically like have the NHS, right? And they have this problem in the UK. And and for Normal reasons, right? Like it's it's the exact problem that we have on highways in America, right? Which is that if you make something that people like want to use, right? Like a road between Philadelphia and New York City or a hospital and then you say this is free at point of service, which is appealing. Like there are reasons to make healthcare free at point of service and there are reasons that I-95 is free at point of service. But like what happens is it gets overcrowded right? Because like it's this good, useful thing and you're giving it to people for free. And then you need to come up with some means of like rationing access. And on a highway, it's just like first come, first serve, right? And you get huge traffic jams. They try not to do that at hospitals because that would be dumb to have, you know, people like, dying while other people are, you know, getting getting stitches on their arm. But like somebody winds up needing to wait, right? And the only fix for it is, well, you can build more. You, you can just put more money into it and, and create more supply of, of services. But even so, it's like in particular places, right? Like if you're in uh, – I, I know there's like a, a small VA hospital in Calais, Maine, which is like way – East, a million miles from every place. And it's like, I don't know, how many hospitals are they realistically going to make there? You could make more, though. Like, it just becomes a question of of money, but it's it's like it's intrinsic to the system. And it seems to me that if you're – actually, if you're providing healthcare services at an appropriate level in that kind of system, there are going to be people who are annoyed by wait times, right? Like, if there were no wait times in the NHS – in the UK, I would say that the UK government has started overspending on the NHS and should probably actually put more money into like something else like they might need schools or people might like lower taxes or, or something like that, right? A, a um, hospital system that could treat everybody for free right when they show up would be a really like an overbuilt hospital system in which tons of doctors on a typical afternoon are like actually not doing anything. And that's why there's no wait time to to see them, right? Like it just like, I, I don't know, like like a good restaurant, right? Like you can't just always get a table there. And that's because they're doing their business correctly.
1: Yeah, I recently, um, this reminds me of an article I read in the Times about a week ago about this concierge emergency room that's opened in Manhattan that um, you pay a, a $10,000 a year fee and you can like go – you this and then you go and like you get billed for And they charge you for the services. They charge right. you for the services, but it's $10,000 to like have those doctors sitting around so that when you go, you will not have to wait. And like I would agree if we decided like let's collect $10,000 from every American or, you know, in England, let's collect like – 8,000 pounds, you know, for every British person, but we'll guarantee they'll never have to wait to see a doctor, um, that that probably would not be the best use of our public dollars. You know, to Ella's question, it's frustratingly hard to find out kind of where the wait time issue is with the VA after this whole scandal unfolded in 2014. Um, You know, I was trying to read through some of the GAO reports um, about what they've been doing. And, it just doesn't seem like there's fantastic data at this point about how the issues change. I think one of the hard things is that the VA is a large system. We're talking about 170 hospitals, and things are going to be quite different from one hospital to another. You know, the wait time issues were focused at a handful of hospitals. You know, one thing I did think was interesting is the GAO, they have looked at this VA choice program that allows people to um, to go to outside private providers— and they weren't able to see any um, any change in wait time due to this choice program that's been implemented. And they said just that <laughs> one of the frustrating things is just that the data is really bad. Um, one example they point is they can't even measure the wait times at this point because the VA data doesn't capture the time it takes for the VA to prepare a referral and then send it to an outside provider or the time spent by the outside provider in accepting the referrals and contacting the veterans to opt into these in, into these visits. So it's just um, – it's a big bureaucracy that sometimes it's really frustratingly hard to see what is working and what isn't. I mean, the, the last thing I'd say on wait times, though, is um, it's not like this isn't a problem you see elsewhere in America, particularly for people who are uninsured. The wait time could be forever because they cannot afford health coverage. They feel they can't afford to seek coverage. So, you you know, you might see less wait times in terms of days it takes someone who is insured to get a an appointment, but that doesn't really... Um, you know speak for the overall population where you can see very very similar wait time issues if you ever look at um the commonwealth fund every other year does the study of industrialized countries and you always see the united states at the very bottom in terms of how long you have to wait for healthcare and that represents a really widespread in most countries with national healthcare systems people with insurance are probably waiting longer than people with insurance in the United States but in when you look at the whole spread of the country because you have people who are uninsured and a much larger number of people who are uninsured here than in other countries you're going to see longer wait times you know throughout the private side of the American healthcare system
0: if you own the cultural brand the way Trump did right of like Trump loves vets and he would say it i mean he's so he's so good at like Doing politics the way politics works for normal people, rather than for people who actually care and think about politics, like Trump would say, "We love the vets. How about the vets? How much
2: do I love the vets? I'm going to donate money to the vets." <laughs>
0: he would just say over and over again, right? That like a normal politician would like have their seven point program for veterans, and then you would talk to the campaign. And just like, why do we have this seven point program? Well, the point of the program is to demonstrate that we love. Veterans, and then we care about them. But Trump just like leaves that out. He just says over and over again that he loves veterans, and that when he's president, things are going to get better for veterans. And it's not just that he doesn't have a program in details, but it's like he doesn't grapple with the issue, right? Which is just like it, the, like the wait times is a, it's like a fairly linear problem. Like we, we could. You know, I, I was defending the existence of some wait times, but like you don't want the wait times to be too long. But like it's just it's a cost-benefit question. It's like, how much do you care? about investing in creating more healthcare facilities that are earmarked for veterans versus other things that you could do. And particularly when there are like quantitative supply limits on the number of doctors and things in the United States, like how much do you care? How much sense does it make in rural areas that are losing their hospitals to like invest in veteran-specific healthcare? Or should we come up with some other kind of more hybridized solution, right? Like there's like a a question here and – they're just not like interested in it on any level. And and to me, that's what's most telling about this. Like we mentioned the analogy to Ben Carson as a, as a HUD secretary. But I think Republicans sincerely do not care about the Department of Housing and Urban Development and its work. And that they are happy politically to take the list, right? That like I think that the typical Republican thinks – That if what Republicans think is that HUD is a joke agency and that they are going to ha-ha-ha put Ben Carson in charge of HUD and destroy it so that nothing is done to help low-income people with severe housing needs in cities, that like that's good for them. That is their politics. Like message from Republicans is we don't care about poor black people in cities. Uh, But veterans is the opposite of that, right? Like they really want to be seen as caring about veterans and helping them. And that's where like I just don't get it. Like with Trump, there's there's always a range of like how much of this is Donald Trump personally versus how much of this is normal Republican stuff. And I just think like a re- baseline Republican president would try to select a VA secretary who he had a good faith belief would do a good job. Like he might— well, ma- if you
1: look back at like the Bush ones, they generally came from not necessarily healthcare but like managing a large part of the— Military, which like would make sense management wise, uh, you know, as someone to run it.
0: Yeah, and and but and like more so than Democrats, I mm-hmm. think actually like have real political stakes in being seen as as doing this well. And you know, I mean, I think Obama picked Eric Shinseki, right? Who you know, the backstory in Shinseki is he was chief of staff of the Army when George W. Bush was president, and he. Famously warned in congressional testimony that an occupation of Iraq would require hundreds of thousands of soldiers and many years. Uh, this really angered Don Rumsfeld. It angered the White House. So they cut his career short. And So Obama like brought him back. As, as veteran secretary, you wouldn't say he was like unqualified. He was the former chief of staff of the army. So obviously he had large-scale administrative experience. But on some level, they brought him back. For the story, right? That like this general whose expertise was slighted by the Bush administration was like coming back and he was part of Team Obama. They didn't bring him on because he had like a transformative vision of veterans healthcare. And, you know, it wound up not working out that well because administering a big healthcare system to serve 9 million people is – challenging and it doesn't really run on autopilot effectively, I think is is what we've seen. And it's the scariest thing about Trump is when you see him being so slipshod with things that like he really ought to care about. If wait times got way worse at the VA or some new scandal came, like that would be really bad for Trump in a way that a scandal at HUD isn't, it seems to me.
2: It wouldn't be good for all of the veterans that he said that he loved so many times on the campaign trail. It wouldn't reflect well.
0: We'd love the vets. We'd love the vets. All right. And we also love you, Weeds listeners. If you love us and if you love each other, uh, you should consider checking out the Weeds Facebook group. It is a great place to continue the discussion, to you know suggest other topics, uh, debate these issues that we are here If you love about. Vox
1: Podcasts, you should definitely check out Today Explained, which continues to be fantastic and come out every day.
0: It is great. They explain things rapidly and amazingly. Uh, It's fantastic. We also are really glad to have had Ella with us uh, making the debut. She's going to be back for future Weeds, I am sure. The Weeds is going to be back next week, uh, Tuesday, and it's going to be great. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks to Griffin Tanner, our engineer. Thanks to Bridget Armstrong, our producer. And uh, we'll see you on Tuesday.